I determined how self-aware they were. And I also looked at kind of outcome variables, like were they happy with their life? Did they feel in control of their life? Did they like their job? Were they happy with their relationships? Were they uh, depressed or anxious? And what I discovered, I, I of course thought that the people who self-reflected more would be more self-aware and better off. But I actually found the exact opposite pattern of results. The more time people spent introspecting, the less self-aware they tended to be, and the more depressed, more stressed, more anxious, less happy, less in control of their lives they tended to be. On this fascinating episode of the Dot to Dot podcast, I speak to Tasha Urich about how we can actually become more self-aware and the huge benefits it has to our lives from mental health through to business success. I absolutely loved speaking to Tasha and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening too. So today I'm absolutely thrilled and I genuinely mean this to be um, joined by Tasha Urich and I've probably pronounced your name wrong because I'm not very good at pronouncing names but I can say this much I'm a massive fan of your work and I often use one of your quotes at the beginning of talks that I give and that's around self-awareness but I think we'll get to that would you like to say a bit about yourself sure Fiona thanks for having me and you pronounce my name perfectly which is rare (laughs) (laughs) so um thank you for having me on just a kind of a brief overview of who who I am and and why I love what I do I'm a third generation entrepreneur and I grew up with a mother who started uh, a company. And so I literally got to follow my mom around uh, from a very young age, seeing what it means to be a CEO and, and seeing leadership in action. And what I noticed, you know, from for that whole entire time was leaders have a tremendous amount of power and a tremendous amount of responsibility to create prosperity for their people. And obviously not just financially, and that's part of it, but really to help them bring out their best. And I, in, in, at university, I studied psychology and theater, which maybe is for another conversation. And I never wanted to be a therapist. I, I wasn't quite as interested in, in those dynamics. And what I discovered uh, about three years in into my studies was there was a field called organizational psychology that was essentially melding my two favorite things, business and psychology, in one field. And I went to such a small school on the East Coast here in the U.S. that I actually had to move to New York City for a summer. It was the summer of 2001, and I took an introductory course on organizational psychology. And literally from that moment, I was hooked. I, I said, this is what I was put on this earth to do. And from there, it was actually relatively easy. I decided to apply to a PhD program in the field. I spent five years uh, you know, researching and teaching and completing my, my PhD and also consulting. And I went into the Fortune 500 world where I wanted to see in a big company, what does leadership look like in action? So I worked at an engineering company. I worked at, in a hospital uh, here in Denver, Colorado in the yeah. US. And then it was time to go out on my own. So about a little more, actually about 10 years ago now, I started my own firm where I focus on helping organizations build effective leaders, effective and inspiring leaders and high-performing teams. And I do that through executive coaching. I do that through executive team development. I do that through leadership development uh, training programs. And then uh, as my sort of fun night job from all of that. I'm, I'm also a writer and a speaker, and I've written two books. One of them is called Bankable Leadership. One is called Insight. And uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of the high level. And I know at least one of those has been a New York Times bestseller, hasn't it? Yes, very cool. Very, very cool. That's I mean, that's just immense. It's, I've got huge, huge admiration for that. And it, it's really interesting hearing your path because my path was a bachelor of science in psychology realizing then that clinical psychology wasn't right for me Mm. Um, but I went on to do a business masters and went to work in a consultancy 
at which point I then realized later than you that actually it was organizational psychology that interested me because it brought those two fields together but it took me four years in consultancy and another master's before I realized that so hats off to you for getting there sooner than I, I, I just I lucked out, honestly. I feel like I, I followed uh, an intuition that I was having and it ended up working out, but it just as well couldn't have, right? So I, I'm just, I feel very lucky. Do you find that people, I mean, obviously you've done a TED talk and you've done quite a few high profile speaking events, but do you find in the US people get what you do? Do they, when you say I'm an organizational psychologist, do they know what that is? Okay, so funny story. <laughs> uh, when I was in my second year of my graduate program, I was buying a couch. And I went in and I was talking to the salesperson and she asked me what I did. And I said, organizational psychology. And she proceeded to tell me for about 10 minutes how disorganized her closet was oh, and cool. how she needed help. <laughs> I love that. Figure it out. And I just, I thought, oh man, wow. Well, we have a PR problem in our field. But uh, interestingly, particularly in the U.S., and I, but I also think globally, the field has grown exponentially mm. in the last 10 years. At one point, organizational psychology was the fastest growing profession. That exactly. was maybe in the, in the 2010s or so. So I do think more and more people understand it. And, you know, I, I think it's sometimes incumbent upon us to explain it well. And I always say it's using the science of human behavior to help organizations succeed. And people, people usually get that. I need to just capture some of your buzz phrases so that I can use them and of course attribute them to you like I do the one that I start some of my talks with and the one I start some of my talks with is and I'll get it wrong now that I've said this so who in this room thinks that they're self-aware and you you know what happens so most oh, yes. of the, most of the people in the room put their hands up and they'll say, well, that's interesting because most of you would be incorrect about that. I and love I, that. And then I give you a quote and go into explaining what self-awareness looks like. Or I tend to talk about it in the context of emotional resilience and, or in the context of leadership or actually in the context of high-performing teams. But I'm always using your quote at the beginning. So your name has passed my lips many times. So I'm very pleased to hear that I'm pronouncing it the right way. It's perfect. Yeah. And thank you for spreading the word and making the world more self-aware. It's, it's so important, isn't it? I can't stress enough how important it is. And what I find, I suppose I find it exciting on the one hand, but a bit upsetting on the other is that people don't always get it. And it, mm. that's exciting in that there's the opportunity, but it's, it's distressing in that I feel it's the leaders, leaders, even leaders don't always get it, but there tends to be an, a much better understanding among the leadership population that there's a need to continually evolve that level of self-awareness. But other people sort of seem to think it's a nice to have. And you think, actually, it's not a nice to have. It's essential. It's essential to living a healthy, fulfilled life. Agree completely. And the science bears that out as well. What I tell people is, you know, there, there pretty much isn't any positive outcome that better self-awareness doesn't impact. And at the end of the day, it's a business imperative. There's, you know, from the, from the sort of financial standpoint, even companies who have high numbers of self-aware people are more financially successful. They have better returns. Leaders who are self-aware are more effective, more promotable. If they're not self-aware, they're 600% more likely to derail. And usually, usually when you sprinkle that into a bunch of leaders, they start to listen. But, but you're exactly right. I think it's, it's it, I call it the meta skill of the 21st century for that reason. It's not just about being effective at work, but it's living a meaningful, fulfilling life. Um, and again, the science bears all of that out. Yeah. And it's interesting because I had a conversation with someone the other day. It was actually within a business context and I was discussing the ethics around technology and social media and any sort of technology that takes advantage of humans' basic drivers. And uh, they went off and said, well, everyone doesn't want to be self-actualized, do they? That's <laughs> not what life is about. And I was thinking, well... <laughs> Maybe they don't, but they should do. Go speak to <laughs> Send them to me. <laughs> so if we go back to your path, so 
East Coast, whereabouts on the East Coast did you study? I went to, for undergraduate, I went to Middlebury College, which is a small liberal arts school. And then uh, I went to New York University, NYU, for my little stint in organizational psychology. And then I studied at a, a large university here in Colorado for my PhD. Oh, cool. Did you grow up in Denver? I did. You know, it's funny. I, I've lived here uh, most of my life and spent much of the last 15 years trying to leave and it just keeps pulling <laughs> me back. <laughs> so it's actually a pretty wonderful place to live. It's amazing. I love it there. And do you ski? Oddly, I am uh, the one of the only people in the state who neither skis nor likes American football. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had a boss. I used to work for a company called Anderson Consulting before it became Accenture. And I had a boss there who I'm still in contact with now. And she was from Denver. And she didn't like skiing either. <laughs> a lot of them are natives who are born here and grow up, grew up here. Uh, I don't know. It's maybe the things that are the closest to us and the easiest for us to do, maybe we're less likely to do them. I think that's so true. It's just like the loads of places in London, I feel ashamed to I walk around London all the time for work. And yet there are museums that I haven't been in for the last 15 years. And people say, have you seen this? And I'm like, no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Perfectly stated. <laughs> so you, when you were, was it when you were back in um, Denver that you, you started working with the Fortune 500 companies? I did. So I, when I was in my graduate program, I did quite a bit of consulting. So strangely, my, my first assignment as a, as a budding consultant was with the CEO and the executive team of uh, what's now one of the biggest craft brewing uh, companies in, in the country. Okay. And I was totally in over my head, but somehow maybe possibly pulled it off. <laughs> but after my studies were finished, I really did want to get into organizations. So uh, here in Denver, there it, it was purchased subsequently, but the company at the time was called CH2M Hill. It's now part of Jacobs Engineering, but it was so fun as a nerd myself, a science nerd, yeah. to work with these brilliant, you know, engineers and program managers and architects. And um, it was just such a, a wonderful first job out of my graduate program. I loved it. Were you actually in-house in that organization? I was, yeah. I, I came in at sort of an entry-level uh, internal consultant role. And by the time I left, I was leading our global leadership development programs for the whole company. And yeah. I met my husband. So I think that was a pretty good thing to pick up along the way. <laughs> definitely, definitely a good thing to pick up along the way. I find personally, one of the things I love about organizational psychology is that bit of me that's geeky in that I love knowing how different companies work and getting to understand. So at the moment, for example, I'm working with a company that puts satellites into space to measure climate emissions mm. and to look at deforestation across the thousands and thousands of hectares and they do it for good because they want to report sort of uh, impartial data back to governments and to big corporations and I love it I'm talking to these people and I'm doing in-depth profiles and I'm like, tell me more I want to right. know what happens it's, not, it's such a great part of our job we get to kind of parachute in and learn all of these cool new things about what people do for for their job I, I couldn't agree more it's fantastic, isn't it? And even, I think, understanding the politics and the dynamics and how that impacts the organisation. But then if you, if you look at it within the whole ecosystem of financial sort of systems that are, exist outside of that organisation and how commercially viable it is and all, those, all the different factors that come into play just make it incredibly interesting. Couldn't agree more. Sorry, I'm geeking out now. So <laughs> more about you. What would you say, what would you say has been the highlight of your career? If you were to look at all of the things, which I know is hard to say, given that you clearly have enjoyed and enjoy what you do. Is there one thing that you would pick out as, as being the absolute pinnacle? Hmm. I think, so for me, what is most fulfilling about what I do is making an impact on other people. 
And, you know, the recognitions are nice and, you know, everybody's ego loves to be recognized. But for me, I think if I had to pick one thing, it would be uh, my latest book, Insight, on on my research on self-awareness. I think it was interesting because when it first came out, it was a little ahead of its time. In 2017, people were slowly starting to see how important self-awareness was. And now I think so many companies are even putting it in their, in their competency models, like big global companies. And I've been really gratified, I think, to be a small part of that, you know, to advance the conversation, to show people the science around this, you know, what many people think is a management buzzword is actually a very substantive subject. So I'm just so proud of that book. And I've, it's been amazing to hear people all around the world too. It's helped, you know, being leaders, leading their organizations, and then just as human beings. I don't think it gets any more gratifying than that. And I think it's right. It's human beings as well. It's not just leaders that benefit from that insight about self-awareness. When did you do your TED Talk? So I've done two. Uh, My first one was, I believe, in 2014. And my most recent one was, yeah, it was 2017. I didn't realize you'd done two. I must have missed one of them. I'll have to have a look. Yeah, Um, I had my first one. it, It was a, it was a, it was basically on some of the topics in my first book, Bankable Leadership, but I saw that as my dry run, you know, for the, for the big one, <laughs> yeah. but it was, they're both with an affiliate here in Denver. That's actually one of the biggest TEDx affiliates. They were awesome. Oh, really? Oh, I was meant to do a TEDx actually at London School of Economics. And um, basically I kept putting it off because I hate being videoed and not that I probably had anything that anyone wanted to hear before I'd written a couple of books either, but I was due to do one. I had the rehearsal in March and then everything went down into lockdown oh, this week. And so I I'm so geared, sorry. <laughs> I geared myself up for it, really egged myself up for it for ages. You know what it's like, you know, I oh, yeah. it over and over and over again in my head and out loud. And but um never mind, that's fine. Your but it'll I, happen. It will happen. It will happen. But your TED Talks, I think you're probably underplaying the impact that you have had in putting self-awareness on the map of organizations. Because although people might not say your name specifically, it will be from you that that began to gain momentum. Thank you. Yeah, I... uh... I think part of it is folks like you who see the work, understand its importance and who are helping with that. You know, it, it's, it's bigger than just one person. And one of the things that's, that's been so exciting to me is how many, you know, folks in peripheral fields as me have picked this up and run with it. And I, I can't see any better way to have, a, you know, a big impact on organizations than that. What's nice is, and this is something that I've personally never struggled being a female in the business world until I started writing. And I've found that being a female author, I have struggled. I don't know how you found it, but I don't know if you remember, but you you volunteered to endorse my first book. And I cannot tell you what that meant because if you're in the UK, having, you know, even a tiny crack of light into the US is amazing. I've done lots of work in the US before, but it's different. Um, And I think what that represents to me is how women lift women. Right. And when women lift women, it's such an amazing thing. And it's absolutely critical for female authors to do that for each other. It is... um, it's interesting to hear your experience because I've had a similar one where there's just, you know, if you look at, you know, Forbes or Inc, they'll publish the 10 greatest business books of all time article. And there'll be maybe one woman Mm. in that slate. And there's just, it seems to be, you know, mostly I haven't experienced a lot of bias, at least consciously that I've been aware of in my consulting or even my speaking, but as an author, 
I don't think the glass ceiling has really been punctured as much as we would think in 2020. And so, you know, like I saw Amy Cuddy gave you a shout out on her yeah. uh, Instagram a couple weeks ago. I think that it's so important that we help each other and support each other. Well, thank you for supporting me. And I, I was actually gobsmacked, to be honest, uh, because I've kind of probably blindly made my way through thinking, well, I've, I had a big brother. I was used to growing up around boys. I went to company when I first started consulting. I was a minority in that I was one of not many girls, but that was fine. That was actually quite fun, you know, a bit of banter. And I've worked with leaders and leadership populations are predominantly male, although I would champion women, obviously. And then it was this book writing business. I've just been quite flummoxed. It, it's an interesting one. And like you say, I think it's one that uh, hopefully we can we can push the boundaries on just like we're pushing boundaries on some of the other stuff that's, that's happening. Exactly. Um, yeah, how, so I'm also interested because, so you worked for CHTM Hill, you said, and then you went to work for a hospital. Was that after that? Here's a, this is an amazing story. It, it was just, I think the universe helping me along. I was, um, I was feeling a little stuck in my, in my job at the engineering firm. I, the, the, the blessing and the curse had been, I was in so, so many different positions while I was there that I had sort of done, I felt like everything I was going to be able to do there. And I, my, my stepfather, uh, who, who's a you know, parent to me and very close to when my mom was out of town, he broke his ankle and he, because he has some health complications, he was in the hospital. And so I, you know, I would go in and spend as much time with him as I could while, while my mom was gone, especially, and they gave him this morphine drip. And so he was very, very happy about this whole situation, you know, at least from the morphine. <laughs> and he said something like, you know, a place like this could really use someone like you. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be interesting? Being an organizational psychologist in a hospital, in a not just a healthcare setting, but in a hospital. And obviously, you know, I, I was a big Grey's Anatomy fan. So I thought, wow, it would be so exciting. <laughs> And, and he said, just humor me. You know, we don't have anything else to do. Why don't you look and see what jobs are posted for someone like you at a hospital? You know, just look in Denver. So I looked and an opening came up for a director of organizational development in that hospital. That's amazing. And it had been open for a year. Oh, wow. So I wrote the recruiter from the hospital room. Oh, and wow. not surprised. I got it like a call back 20 minutes later. They had me come in, they interviewed me. They said, you're exactly what we've been looking for. Um, and, and the rest was history. Sometimes I feel like, you know, it's, it's hard not to believe in fate when things yeah. like that happen, but it was the most amazing experience. I, I can't even tell you. It's given me such perspective on, you know, even things like what is a real emergency in an mm -hmm. organization? You know, I'd be working with nurse leaders and they'd say, well, no one died today. So that's a really good thing. I'm like, wow. It, it was, I just learned so, so much from them and was so inspired and just even more grateful for what our healthcare professionals do. I think that's awesome. I think, um, I think that's an amazing, amazing story. It's so strange how serendipitous certain circumstances are in life that are quite um, formative to us, quite significant. Right. I, I'm very passionate about healthcare because my stepfather actually. He was a professor of epidemiology, but he's also a, a medical doctor. So I've grown up fascinated by healthcare and I'm fascinated by the NHS. I'm frustrated by it, but fascinated by it. But it's interesting because I, I mentioned that my husband works for McKinsey and they asked me to go in and do a talk about emotional resilience. And just to your point about what the perspective on life or death I thought, you know, these guys, they're really, really bright and girls, they're very bright. They're very switched on, very savvy. And they may just look at me like, hmm, you're talking about fluffy stuff. I'm not interested. <laughs> and so I thought, I know what I'll do. I've done work with surgeons. So I took a surgeon with me <laughs> and I got him to show he's a maxillofacial surgeon who takes out cancerous tumors and he showed an operation. And I said, look, when I work with these guys on emotional resilience, if they don't remain emotionally resilient, people die. And whilst wow. you're making massive you know, decisions that impact the finances of organizations and their success and people's jobs, 
no one dies. And it worked. <laughs> it got their attention. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. I'm quite, not in a negative way, but in a positive way, quite envious of you actually working in a hospital. I think they're amazing places. Oh my gosh. It was so cool. I got to do things that, you know, I never would have imagined I would do. I The chair of the anesthesiology department and I, you know, became close friends and colleagues. And he took me uh, around with him in the operating room for a day. So I got to see open heart surgery. Oh. I got to see, you know, joint replacements. Like it, it, it was so cool. And the other thing I got to do was uh, all the all the directors and above in the hospital had to do patient rounding. So every, I think it was every Wednesday morning at 8 a.m., I would go to, I was assigned to our maternity unit and I would go talk to people about their experience, uh, you know, and these brand new parents, they just had babies and it was just you and I, I think both are really excited by new and interesting things that we get to learn. And I think for me, that was just, it was the coolest thing ever. I was so lucky to have done it. It's funny because I have a grin from uh, ear to ear at the moment hearing that. I just think it sounds so brilliant. Such an amazing experience. And it must have enriched how you see the world and the advice that you're able to give to other organizations immensely as well. I do think that, you know, in some ways, engineers and nurses couldn't be more different in Mm. terms of sort of what they're doing every day. And I felt like those two experiences, one after the other, and then me going out and starting my company was, you know, I couldn't have designed a better rotational program and and it just worked out that way. And, And again, you know, I, I went with it and I was grateful for it, but I do feel like, especially one of the, one of the biggest things for me that I took away from my experience at the hospital was how emotionally connected you can be to your work and to your colleagues. And I, I would come home the first couple of weeks on the job and talk to my husband and, and he, he would ask me how many people cried today in your meeting? And I'd be like three, <laughs> and it was it was just such a you know because going from working with these you know very like buttoned up engineers whom I love and adore to you know people with nurses with the most open hearts and it was just incredible. It was incredible, and I think it helped me grow emotionally as a person too. But I would say you must have been pretty. It sounds like, and this is me being presumptive or hypothesizing, or however you want to put it, that you had an upbringing or an attitude to life that was brought to you by your mum and your stepdad, which encouraged a curious outlook and exploration of everything that was going on around you and understanding um, a desire to look under the, the what we'd call the bonnet, you'd call the hood. <laughs> yes, I, I think you have that spot on. And even just um, letting me follow my curiosity, I, I probably really annoyed my mom when I was young because I went through these stints where, you know, um, I was into horseback riding. Well, no, for, let me do this in order. So I was into gymnastics and then I was into, I was a competitive figure skater. Then wow. I kind of got sick of that. And then I was a horseback rider and then I got really into theater and that stuck. But um, I was actually reading uh, uh, Grit recently and uh, Angela Duckworth talks about that. She talks about how parents really should, you know, ask their children to make a commitment of at least a year, but support them in wherever their sort of non-school related curiosity leads. And eventually they will find something that sticks. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I haven't thought about it as it applies to me in that way, but I think that's exactly what my parents did. I I love Angela Duckworth. I think she's brilliant too. She's another one of my, I I really need to just come and meet all you guys in the States. Um, (laughs) We would love that. You are welcome anytime, anytime it is safe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who knows when that will be. Um, Oh, soon, soon. soon, soon. Uh, I listened to her actually on, you know, Dax Shepard. Oh yeah. Oh, he's brilliant. I love him. He's great. And he does this, I can't remember what it's called his podcast, but it's fascinating because he basically says that he doesn't know how things work, but he's really interested. And so he likes to talk to people who do know how things work. And he interviewed Angela Duckworth on his podcast and it's a really great listen. should tune in. I'll have to check that out. That sounds amazing. Yeah, really good. One of my fascinations and another brilliant (laughs) US 
uh, side psychologist is Todd Kashdan, who I don't know if you've heard of him, but he studies curiosity. And I do find curiosity to be fascinating. And I think to really have good self-insight, you have to have that curiosity. But what you've posted recently, I thought was absolutely just incredibly insightful. Sorry to use the name of your book. Um, but the, that it's asking what, not why. Correct. And, and I, I, I'm really interested to hear more about that because I know that I've spoken about sort of self-understanding, self-awareness with teenagers and I've, I've tried to stress to them, it's not about introspection, it's about a light curiosity of what's going on. But I think you may manage to articulate it so succinctly with that it's about what and not why. It's a brilliant way of explaining it. So how, what version of the background on this do you want? Because I, I could literally talk about this for 30 minutes or I could talk about it for two minutes. <laughs> talk about it for 30 minutes, that would be great. Because <laughs> this is actually one of the most interesting things we discovered. Um, one thing I didn't mention was when I, when I started to work on Insight, I wanted to assemble a, a team of researchers to really understand these questions we thought we knew the answers to. What is self-awareness? Where does it come from? Why do we need it? How do we get more of it? And very early on in our research program, I, I ran on my own just this very simple study where I, I surveyed about 300 people and I asked them basically two sets of things. So the first was, how often do you introspect or self-reflect? How often do you sort of examine the causes or the you know, meaning behind your thoughts and feelings and, and behaviors? And you know, it would be daily, hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, you know, all the way to never. And then I surveyed them on, on variables that I thought would be related to their self-reflection because self-awareness is good, right? So mm -hmm. I, I asked, you know, first of all, I figured I, I determined how self-aware they were. And I also looked at kind of outcome variables, like were they happy with their life? Did they feel in control of their life? Did they like their job? Were they happy with their relationships? Were they uh, depressed or anxious? And what I discovered, I, I of course thought that the people who self-reflected more would be more self-aware and better off. But I actually found the exact opposite pattern of results. The more time people spent introspecting, the less self-aware they tended to be and the more depressed, more stressed, more anxious, less happy, less in control of their lives they tended to be. And at first I thought to myself, oh no, <laughs> maybe I need to be writing an article about uh, like self-delusion and how self <laughs> bad. And, and I couldn't figure it out, <clears throat> excuse me, until I found, I actually found a study that was done, you know, decades and decades ago where they, they looked at different types of introspection. So one of them is, is that psychological, you know, excavation where we try to figure out, you know, what is the role of my mother and all of this? And, and what does this really mean? And then there's more sort of um, tangible action-oriented thinking. And, and I just, I saw that pattern. I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I went back to another part of our research by then, which we had, we had gotten some pretty good data on. We did these exhaustive interviews with people who didn't start out self-aware, but who really were able to dramatically improve seeing themselves clearly and knowing how other people saw them. And, and we called them you know, somewhat as a joke, but it stuck self-awareness unicorns. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so I looked, so I looked at our unicorns and I thought, okay, what they're obviously doing some type of introspection and I need to figure out what they're doing differently than the average person. And so as we got into this, I started to notice this really clear pattern. The word why was, it appeared, I think, less than 150 times in the interviews, but the word what appeared more than a thousand times. And I thought, well, that's, maybe that's just semantics, but I started to look into it and, you know, I'll give you an example. So there, there was one gentleman who, he was a, a marketing manager and he had just gotten a new boss and, you know, he was he and the boss were not getting along. They were like oil and water. And so we asked him, how did you sort of think about that and, and figure out, you know, what the insight was and what to do about it? And I think most of us would have asked a question. I know I would have to introspect, like, 
why are my boss and I like oil and water? Yeah. But he asked, what can I do to show her I'm the best person for this job? And the difference there seemed really subtle. But then, then I started looking into, you know, when we're asking why, which I would argue is the most common introspective question, what's really going on? And there's, there's two problems with why questions. The first is we actually can't access so many of our unconscious thoughts and feelings and motives. Newsflash, Sigmund Freud was wrong. <laughs> this idea that you could just sit on a couch and all of your deepest, darkest desires would, you know, come into full view. It, they're not accessible to us. And so what happens is when we ask ourselves why questions, we settle on an answer that feels right, but is often not the actual answer. So that's one, that's one reason why it sort of leads us away from self-insight. The other reason asking why questions can be really dangerous is that they um, they cause us to ruminate. You know, if, if you think about the example I just gave of our marketing manager, why are we like oil and water? Oh, yeah. it's because you know I'm just a I, I, I'm not a team player, and I've always been like this, and you know I can see these patterns in my childhood, and oh, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be successful. And before you know it, you're in I call it the rabbit hole of rumination. Yeah, I call I call it the rabbit hole, but I like the rabbit hole of rumination even more. It's another one I'm going to borrow from you. <laughs> Perfect. It's very alliterative. Yeah, that's why I like it too. But but I think and and we don't see that. We we're we're told over and over introspection is good. Introspection leads to self-awareness. But the good news was it's not that, you know, we learned that it's not that introspection is ineffective or wrong. It's just the way most of us are doing it is wrong. And so we can make that small switch from why to what, why, you know, keeps us focused on our problems, what moves us forward, why. That's that's immense. That, that is, I mean, that can be life-changing. I agree. And it's interesting because the first time I, I sort of discovered this pattern, I was actually trying to explain it. You probably know the name Chip Heath one of the the best business authors, you know, of all time, in my opinion. And I was trying to explain it to him and I just, I I couldn't really get it. And I remember thinking one day, like, should I even continue to pursue this? I thought, yeah, why not? And it ended up being, you know, arguably one of the most powerful concepts from that whole research program. So that's another reminder is if you're, if you're dealing with a squirrely problem and you haven't figured it out yet, maybe don't abandon it quite as easily as you might want to. You say it in a very positive way, but it must have felt pretty damning when you sort of looked at your results and you think, what's going on here? Why? Um. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Yes, I may or may not have shed a couple of tears when I first saw that because I kept rerunning the data in that first study and thinking I had coded everything wrong, but I didn't. And then, you know, it's like, okay, but, but, once again, the things that are most surprising tend to be what are what's most valuable. But it took your determination and your perseverance, your grit. If we're using- wow, yes, I learned from the best on grit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think again, it's probably without trying to retrospect or on you, but it's your mum and your probably your stepdad as well. I don't know, but if your mum was an entrepreneur, there has to be that spirit there, doesn't there? That if things don't always work, there will be bad quarters, there will be bad results, there will be bad outcomes. And it's a case of going, okay, um, this doesn't feel too good, but I'm going to keep going. That's it. Exactly. I, I don't know if you found this, you know, with, with all of your different writing projects, but some of them are really, really hard. And some of them are a little bit easier, but I always find the harder they are, the better it is on the other side of it. Like the prouder I am of it and the more valuable I feel like it is. So it's, I think that's an important thing for for writers to remember, but for all of us to remember. I agree. And I think it's really interesting. It's something that I've learned to live with more the discomfort. So when I'm writing, it does feel uncomfortable. It feels like this isn't going to work. I can't get it how I want it. I'm not, you know, I've got to do 85,000 words and I've written two, but I now know that it's sort of sitting with that discomfort enables you to work through it and it enables a probably a higher level of creativity, but it's hard. And it's so hard. (laughs) hard. And I think these are things that I really think these are things that people need to be taught because 
we don't know these things. And what's interesting there as well, when you're talking about the why, because one of the reasons I wanted to do psychology was because I couldn't work myself out. And so as a teenager, I used to go down horrible rabbit rumination, rabbit holes, rabbit hole rumination. Have I got that right? Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I would just get myself tied in knots. But no one had no one had explained to me. It was no one's fault because people didn't know. No one had explained to me that's not how you do it. That's just going to make things worse. And and basically, I was a prime example of where self analysis goes wrong. Mm. And it got it got me into quite a bad state. So I studied psychology, but it wasn't until I was in my twenties when I was doing my MSc where we studied, we actually studied something called, I'm sure you'll have heard of it, acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I realized, oh, oh, okay. So we analyze what's going on in the outside world and it creates resolution. It enables us to fix things. But when we try and do that on the inside world, it just gets us down those rabbit holes. But What I love again about your research is not only have you shown that within a healthy population as opposed to a clinical population, Mm. but you've also just articulated it in such a simple way that someone can switch quite easily from one method of self-analysis to the other, which most things that take, um, which, which involves sort of a switch in mindset and all those things take quite a lot of work but this is something that we can all just go actually no I'm going to go from why to what gaining self-awareness does not have to be a painful slog and that's really important to hear and actually, so maybe just to add on to that this this was another surprise to me from our our uh, research. I think most of us think about building self-awareness as maybe these, these moments where, you know, all of a sudden everything becomes clear to us and we go from, you know, zero to 50. But we discovered that for the most highly self-aware people, that's not how their journey typically looks. It's more about small, daily, incremental improvements in their self-awareness. So I think sometimes we have these really lofty goals, like I'm going to finally figure myself out once and for all, when an even more effective and frankly, less energy intensive approach is I'm going to find small opportunities every day to be curious and to learn more about who I am and how I'm seen. And that's really the the secret formula, I think, to building greater self-awareness. You have to be a little patient, but if you think about it, if you if you become 1% more self-aware per week, that is an extraordinary improvement over the course of months and years. Yeah, it, um, it is. And the other thing with self-awareness is I, I describe it as, and this is probably not the best example, so I often find myself changing to another example. But do you remember when we used to have radios you're younger than me, I think. But Oh, yeah, um, radios, sure, sure. Radios. And you would maybe doing some studying in the garden, in the backyard, and you'd have it outside. And suddenly the signal would go. And then you'd have to sort of move it to a different place on the table or move the aerial. Or, and I describe self-awareness as being a bit like that. It's that even when you think you've nailed it and you've tuned in, the things in your environment are going to change. And as the things in your environment change, your self-awareness changes because people are going to see you differently. Events are going to impact you differently. And so it's this continual evolution of understanding. It's not an arrival at a point. I love that. I think that's spot on. I'm chuffed that you say that because you are the guru of (laughs) (laughs) self-awareness. And I will steal that from you with attribution. So now we're even. (laughs) Please do, do, but it's your research. (laughs) Mine's just an example. Um, So when you say you're doing all this research, this is after your PhD. It is. This is something that that, um, not everyone intuitively understands. It's funny. People say, well, you're, so I, I say I'm a organizational psychologist, researcher, you know, author, executive coach. 
They say, well, wait, wait a minute, researcher, what, what university do you work at? I say, I don't have a university affiliation. They say, well, how do you do research? They <laughs> say, I just do it. <laughs> the, the, the one thing that, that I don't have, um, which is why it's more of a, like a, an extracurricular activity for me is um, funding, right? So for me, I fund all of my own research because I believe it is that important to the work that I do and to um, the value that I hope to provide to organizations and to leaders. So it, it requires a little bit of creativity and a little bit of bootstrapping, but anyone can be a researcher. It's pretty cool. You're just becoming more and more of a heroine, everything you tell me. Oh, don't look at me like that for sure. <laughs> I am I am obstinate. And if I want to do things, I do them. Whether you know whether or not they're the right things, who knows? But no, I love that you do that though. I've um my research tends to be more uh well it's for books so it's not proper research like you're carrying out where you're but I keep you know I keep talking about doing more stuff with universities but but like you say you you, you've just gone and done it and presumably you're doing sort of statistical analysis and all that sort of stuff. What would life be without statistical analysis? It would be a dark and sad place, right? <laughs> of course it would. Of course it would. <laughs> Actually, I went to, um, I, this is my idea of like a vacation in the pandemic, but my husband and I a few weeks ago went to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we were there for a week and I called it my, my data analysis book hole. <laughs> which was um, I'm I'm I have all this new data for my a new book that I'm working on and I oh, I literally spent the entire week analyzing data. I was so happy. It was just the best week. It was relaxing. It was fun. <laughs> it was, so Once yes, again, I, I'm smiling because I do get that. I do get that. I, I we uh, this time last year we were in LA and we were there for two weeks. Uh, my kids were on what we call half term. And I spent every day writing. And the day I didn't write, I went up to UCLA to meet a man named Professor Iacoboni, Marco Iacoboni, who's, who's brilliant. And he does a lot of research. He's head of biobehavioral sciences and psychiatry. And his research is into predominantly into the mirror neuron, but it's about generosity and altruism and empathy and he is just the nicest man. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. It's, it's kind of, it's just finding finding out new stuff. When it's analysis, it's finding out how the results are going to come out, what story they're telling you. It's really exciting. I agree. Maybe not, maybe not to everyone, but... <laughs> <laughs> but to us, we, we nerd out on those things. Yeah, yeah. In, the, in the funnest way possible. Yeah. So what, so your new book, is there anything you can say about it? Because I understand that you might not be sharing information on it yet? Oh, sure. So uh, yeah, I, I have been sharing information on it mostly because it's interesting going back to our conversation about hard things. This has actually been the hardest book I've ever worked on. And I, I've spent almost 18 months just trying to conceptually get my head around it and doing a bunch of research. But what, what I want to do so that the working title is actually, hang on, I have a new working title. I'm going to look it up, and this this is a this is an exclusive, first time ever. Let's see if I can find it. Okay, there we go. So the the working title is Unbreakable: The Science and Power of Knowing How to Handle Bad Things at Work. Oh, I like that. And the idea is, you know, it's almost like the workplace, in some sense, was inadvertently designed for slights and wrongs and feelings of, you know, even betrayal in some situations. We are competing for resources. We don't always have the, the trust that we have in our personal relationships. And so what, I, what I've seen for my whole career is people walking around with, you know, researchers call it interpersonal injuries. And, and I'm calling them bad things because that is rolls off the tongue a little bit better. But what I want to try to do is look at what are, in a similar way with self-awareness, right? What is sort of the state of interpersonal injury at work? What are the different types of things we respond to? What are, um, we're starting to find that some people have patterns in how they respond. And then I'm looking into, at the individual level, what responses actually help people bounce back? Because what I want to do is, is teach people and organizations how to be more resilient from those specific types of bad things. So like one example, this is another exclusive. I, we found that it, we interviewed 
300 people, working adults, and ask them, tell us about a bad thing that's happened to you. What did you do? What was the impact? How did it turn out? And we've discovered that even though it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction for people sometimes to just say, well, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go find a new job. People who did that were no more or less likely to have sort of gotten over it and moved past that event than people who stayed. Interesting. And so for me, like there's so many, you know, there's a lot of common wisdom, but does the common wisdom really work? And then what I'm especially interested in is how do you apply that at the, at the team level and even the cultural level? So we know that cultures where people don't hold grudges, for example, are more innovative, they're more efficient, they're more resilient. There's been a lot of research that shows that uh, organizations, for example, who go through layoffs, they, they're more resilient after the layoffs if they have the type of culture where people can move past things like that. So, so I think there's a lot to it and it's been really hard to get my head around, but I'm, I'm finally starting to feel like I'm making some progress. So it's just really, really exciting. It sounds like there's masses to that. I think it could be leveraged again, just the same way as your other research, leveraged in such positive ways. But if that can be implemented at an organizational level, it could be amazing. Because it, I, it, so. I mean, it, it not only improves the emotional health and well-being of, of an organization's population, which of course is immensely important, but by doing so, you're also releasing potential enabling performance like you say creativity innovation better decision making it's exactly it's, it's that's really exciting really exciting oh i'm glad you don't hate it that's a good sign oh, no goodness <laughs> no no i want to know more um I'm conscious of your time because I also saw on social media that you have, you're pretty inundated this month, I think, with uh, requests to talk and do work and you're doing your research and your writing. So I'm, it just makes me even more grateful that you've spared the time to have this chat today. It was an absolute pleasure. So, so fun. I felt like we, it was just two of us like over a glass of wine. Oh, that'd be nice. The best podcast conversation. <laughs> I'm going to sign off now and uh, say just thank you thank you thank you it's been amazing talking to you my pleasure I expect it was quite evident how much I love talking to Tasha if you want to find out more about her work then the links are in the show notes the same for my work if you've enjoyed this show and you'd like to listen to more of the amazing guests then please subscribe and even better if you liked it please rate it Thank you so much for listening.